glad that you're here. We're gonna talk about confession this morning. And let's just say there are different kinds of confession according to different levels of wrongdoing, right? Some forms of confession are just way easier than others. So for example, there are things that you might have done that you're guilty of, but it was completely unintentional. It was, it was an accident. And, and that stuff is maybe the easiest stuff to confess. So for example, I will confess to you that a couple of weeks ago, uh, when we were in the Okanagan with a bunch of families from the church at the, at the Gleaners, that uh, we were at a playground. And I was, I was pushing, I was spinning the kids around one of those little playground merry-go-rounds, which I thought were actually illegal. I didn't know those things were still allowed. And uh, you're going to see a video in a second that will show you why it probably, probably should be illegal. Uh, so I was spinning the kids around on this thing, and despite the warnings of my wife, and that part, I, I guess, was intentional. I intentionally disregarded the warnings of my wife. Uh, I, I spun those kids really fast. And, and there were some kids that were a little bit younger on there. And, and unfortunately for me, but I would say fortunately for you, uh, this was caught on camera. And so here's what happened with a little bit of embellishment from Rodrigo. So that was me in the video, that was me. Now it looks in the video like Josiah went flying off into outer space and I kept on spinning. And I will, I will insist passionately, I will defend myself and say he was in my blind spot, okay? I did not see, I did not see him going flying off, so I just kept on going. Uh, but I confess, I confess that, that I did that. <laughs> and I told, I told Tiffany ahead of time that her son was gonna become a viral video uh, this morning, so they, they knew. Uh, then there's the stuff that you do on purpose, but it's, it's not like, it's just dumb and embarrassing. It's not like, you know, you've destroyed lives here. And so into this category, I would put an event that maybe some of you have read about or heard about. Uh, in Kamloops, there was a real estate agent. Some of you know the story already. He was uh, showing this house to some prospective buyers, and he was thirsty because it was a hot day. And so he went to open the refrigerator of this home and he was looking for water. He didn't find water. Instead, he found a jug of milk and he opened the jug and he just chugged out of it and then he stuck it back in the fridge and closed the door. Now again, unfortunately for him, this was caught on video. The homeowner security camera was, for some reason, pointed towards the kitchen and so they saw him doing this and he has confessed and he is now paying $20,000 in disciplinary fines for chugging milk out of these people's fridge. Which some of you married men are maybe thinking that's a slap on the wrist compared to what you would get if you did that even in your own home. <laughs> you don't do that kind of thing. But in the end, it's just chugging milk, right? It's not like the end of the world. Then there's the stuff the really big stuff that is like destructive, that, that ruins lives and relationships, the stuff that you would want to keep hidden at all costs. And, and so to get into that, I want to bring you into a story from 2 Samuel chapter 11. And David was the king of Israel. 
And at this point, he was at the height of his powers. Uh, the kingdom was expanding. He was winning wars left and right. I mean, he, uh, his, his enemies were being vanquished. Uh, all of a sudden, he's feeling pretty, pretty content, pretty secure, pretty smug even. And that actually, in many cases, is where you're the most vulnerable, is where you have become prideful and self-sufficient. So David became vulnerable. And what we see in 2 Samuel 11 is just one step after the next of David rushing headlong into terrifying, life-altering sin. So it starts with, with uh, in 2 Samuel 11, it says that at the time when other kings would go out to war, David stayed home. He got other people to go and do his work. He's like, you guys got this. I don't need to do anything anymore. We're so awesome. I'll just stay at home. I'll chill. You do, you do the thing. You do the dirty work. So he stays at home. And as he's at home and he's, he's relaxing on his, on his rooftop, he sees a woman taking a bath. And this is apparently before shower curtains were invented, unfortunately. I don't know when those became invented, but they weren't then yet, apparently. So this woman is taking a bath. And, and David notices and he keeps on noticing, he keeps on looking. And then he takes the next step. It's one thing to notice uh, beauty, because this woman was stunningly beautiful. It's one thing to do that. It's another thing to now investigate, well, who, who is this woman? And so he finds out, well, this, this woman's name is Bathsheba. She's not an object, she actually has a name. And she's actually married to one of David's soldiers. And you would think that David who we know of in the Bible generally was a, was a righteous man, you'd think that this would be the point where he would stop, where he would say, I, I probably shouldn't pursue this path any further. But instead, he summons her to his palace, and there's a whole debate here about how much Bathsheba said yes, could have said yes, even. Like, what's, what exactly is the, the dynamic at work here? That's a real live debate. In any case... He summons her to the palace, he sleeps with her, and, uh, and sends, sends her home. So here, here's David, a man who up to this point has been given everything that he, he has by God, by grace, now that he's powerful, is just determined to take whatever he wants at all costs, and, and you know, just thinks that he can get away with it. But those things that we do, that we intend to keep secret and hidden, they have a, a way of often getting out. And so Bathsheba shortly after sends word to David, hey buddy, by the way, I'm pregnant. And so this complicates things immensely. Now, now it's gonna become clear that David has committed this immoral act. So David's got an idea. This is what he's going to do. He is going to send for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who is fighting David's war that David himself isn't fighting. He's at home. Uriah's fighting this guy's war who just slept with his wife. And he's going to summon Uriah back. And, and so he, he wines and dines Uriah. And the, the duplicity here, right? That David is like flattering this guy, befriending him. Oh, buddy, I'm so, I'm so happy that you're, you're my soldier. Meanwhile, I'm doing this other thing. And, and so he wines and dines him. And the whole idea is that he wants to get, even gets Uriah drunk enough so that Uriah will go home and sleep with Bathsheba so that when, you know, Bathsheba has a baby, people will be like, well, obviously it was Uriah. Remember that time when he came home from, from the war? Now, 20 years down the road when they're like, that guy looks an awful, like, awful lot like David. Like, I don't know. 
I might spoil it. But in the meantime, this is a really great plan, right? So David summons Uriah, tells him, hey, go and you know, enjoy your wife. And Uriah says, I can't do that. I can't, I can't enjoy myself in that way when the armies of Israel are off fighting these battles. There's no way. So here's this man who's, he's actually a foreigner, by the way. He's a Hittite. He's not even an Israelite. And he is far more righteous and committed to God's cause at this moment than David is. He says, I'm not going to do it. Well, now David's got a conundrum. What's he going to do? He can't cover it up by getting Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba. So, so David has another brilliant idea. I mean, he is just digging this hole further and further and further. He's just committed to chasing this path down. And so his brilliant idea is, I know, I'll order a hit on Uriah's life. It's escalating a little bit quickly here. So he, he comes up with this idea. He's gonna send a letter to the general of the army and, and he's going to tell the general to put Uriah right at the front lines. And then when the battle gets really intense, everybody draws back, exposes Uriah, he's killed. And, and he sends this letter with guess who? Uriah. He's, like the, the hardness of David's heart in this story. That he sends a letter commanding Uriah's death with Uriah. And David's idea here is that dead men, dead men can't talk, right? So no, Uriah, being dead, can't deny that Bathsheba's pregnancy was, was his doing. So David is just all in on covering this thing up at all costs. His plan works, I guess. Uh, Uriah is killed in battle. Bathsheba, and, and we would love to kind of get her perspective on the whole thing, she mourns for her husband for a period of time, and then David takes her uh, home to, to make her his wife. And, and at, at the end of all of this, I mean, this is kind of as twisted and distorted a narrative as you find in the scriptures. At the end of all of this, David still doesn't have any remorse. You've got a man who was once known for humility and justice and mercy and trust in the Lord, who has just chased this depravity all the way down this seemingly endless hole. And at the end of it, he still brings her home as his wife and just keeps on living as normal. 2 Samuel 12, God sends a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan Nathan speaks to David. He's got, hey, David, I've, I've, got, I've got a situation for you. I've got a story. And he, and he tells David this story about a very rich man who had everything, who stole a sheep from a poor man in order to provide a meal for a visiting friend. And David hears this story, and, and his sense of injustice is awakened. He's enraged. It's completely unacceptable. That man should die. He should pay for it with his own life. And Nathan emphatically responds, you are that man. And this is the point where David's hardness of heart that has accumulated finally breaks apart. Where God's word has kind of made an end around his defenses and, and he's deeply convicted. We get one, one line in 2 Samuel 12 where David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Uh, I've sinned against him. And, and Nathan says that because of David's confession 
of sin, that his sin has been taken away, that it is forgiven. Now, Nathan still says there are gonna be consequences to this. The child that Bathsheba is pregnant with is going to die. And in fact, this, this incident is going to set off a chain of events that's gonna result in a fair bit more sexual brokenness in David's family. So there are still consequences, which is interesting, right? That even when there is forgiveness of sins, there, there are still sometimes consequences to be paid, that you can't turn back the clock, you can't undo the damage that has been incurred. But in any case, David is assured that his sins are forgiven. Now, in 2 Samuel 12, we just get that one line. Uh, I have sinned against the Lord. But in the Psalms, we get an entire psalm that is devoted to David's prayer, to his confession after Nathan confronts him. So that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 51. Uh, we're going through a bunch of the Psalms this summer here at the bridge. So that's this morning's. Let's, uh, let's pray, and then you can open up to Psalm 51. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is not just a word that speaks into perfect ideal circumstances, but a word that reaches down into the depths of human existence and the human heart, and that we get your word even in the wake of such destructive, destructive sin as we see in the affair between David and Bathsheba. I thank you, Lord, that you reach right down into these lowest places and that you speak to us and that you show us, Lord, how you lift us up, how you redeem us, how you restore us. I pray this morning, Lord, for those of us who are coming today and know that there is sin in our lives that needs to be dealt with, that need to be dealt with. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and show us the way. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 51, the um, subtext of the psalm says, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. 
You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's just uh, say off the bat that what we read here is not some empty, half-hearted, weak confession, admission of guilt. What we get here is David being fully cut to the heart. He's deeply moved. Where he had that hardness of heart, now his heart has been rent by his sin. And you notice from some of the things he says about the extent of his sin, especially in verses three to six. So he talks about how he has sinned against the Lord, the Lord only. Now we might uh, want to disagree with David a little bit on that. Might want to say, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think you probably sinned against Uriah. Just maybe, probably Bathsheba. You know, like you've definitely sinned against people here. Definitely Bathsheba. But David recognizes that ultimately all sin falls at the feet of the Creator. That, that in the end, we are accountable to God above all else. God made us. He made us with a purpose. And essentially what sin is, is a rejection of that purpose. What sin is, is essentially a replacement of God as God of our life with anyone or anything else. And so all sin whether somebody thinks about it or not, whether somebody even believes in God or not, all sin is ultimately sin against God. It is sin against a holy and almighty creator who made us for a particular purpose that sin is a denial of. Now there's another implication of that too, by the way, which is that if all sin is sin against God, then when someone sins against you, they have also sinned against God which means something actually about your ability to forgive the wrongs that are committed against you. Because it's not just that God comes onto the side of those who have been wronged and oppressed. It's that God himself has been wronged when someone does wrong to you. And he is just as interested in justice as you are. And in fact, is far better able to bring that about than you are. Which is why Paul says what he does in, in Romans 12 when he says that you are not to take revenge, but you are to leave room for God's vengeance. He will repay. He will take care of it. It's not actually your job. He can handle those things. He makes these judgments much better and much more wisely than you. So you can let go of your need and desire to get back at that person because God's in this too, and, and he's got this. So all sin is sin against God. David recognizes that, confesses that. Then he, then he says this thing. He says that he has been sinful from birth. In fact, he says from conception. Like, what did you do as a little zygote that was so bad, right? <laughs> we struggle with this idea. And I think we struggle with this partly because because of an idolization of youth in our culture. 
So at, uh, at, our, at our adult summer school on Tuesday nights, we've been uh, doing some cultural analysis about how our culture has come to this place in, in some of the more controversial aspects of our world. And early on, we talked about an 18th century philosopher named Rousseau and how Rousseau taught that human nature is essentially pure and innocent and that it's civilization that corrupts us. It's living in society, in relationship with other people that really messes us up. And if we could get back to being those like primal human beings just living off the land, then we would really just take care of the sin problem then and there. That was kind of Rousseau's idea. And we see that again in the idolization of youth and the almost dreamy uh, idealism around living a life in the countryside. I was, even, uh, I was in a conversation with a couple of dads on Friday and we were talking about how great would it be to just leave the, the city behind and go live these self-sufficient lives, you know, farming. And I don't know anything about farming, but it would be amazing, right? Like we all, we all kind of have this like intuitive like, man, just to live out there in the wide open, it be so good. I got news for you that's absolutely going to shock you. Farmers are sinners as well. <laughs> so are kids, actually. <laughs> I don't know if you know that. <laughs> Um, I mean, this is, this is a bit anecdotal, but we sometimes think that, like, kids' bad behavior is always learned. And some of it is learned. They see it. They imitate it. But some of it's more base. It's more instinctual than that. So, again, kind of anecdotally, but when uh, Natalie was very young, when she was, like, less than a year old, there was a family that we hung out with a lot. And um, they were pastors. They had a girl. Their, their first daughter was, like, Natalie's age. And uh, so she, this girl was like under a year old and her parents were very gentle people. They were pastors. Uh, not that that makes you gentle or whatever, but, but they, were, they, were, they, were, they were nice people. And this was their first daughter, so she didn't have any older siblings to learn from. This girl was just constantly just hitting other kids and taking stuff from them. And it was like, <laughs> again, I don't think she, I don't know if she learned it. I, I think there was like some instinctual thing there. Like, that's there, I want it, I don't care if you have it, bam. It, just, it was just in her, you know? The theological term for this is original sin. The idea that, that actually our nature, ever since sin entered the picture, our nature is actually bent towards rebellion. And some people, yes, are maybe more bent. Some people are like bent way over. Some people are just like bent a little bit. But, but everyone's bent. Everyone has this bent. Just, just it's like this inherited characteristic. Just part and parcel of being human towards, towards sin. I've heard it said that we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's, it's our nature. It's just, it's just in us. And so David is kind of recognizing that this, it's, not like, it's not like, hey, I'm a really good person, but I just slipped up this one time. David's recognizing that this is like the inclination of my heart, apart from the grace of God, is, is just towards, towards sin, towards doing things my own way and getting what I want instead of what God wants. So he says, this, this is how deep it goes. Um, before we move on to the next part, I, I want to make a note about verse 6. So in verse 6, David says that God desires faithfulness even in the womb, according to the uh, NIV translation, which is, a, again, a challenging concept, right? Like, again, what am I supposed to do as a zygote? <laughs> but 
But I think that's probably a mistranslation. Most other translations, most other English versions translate it something like, if we could go to that next, the next uh, slide there with the ESV, uh, that you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. That um, the, the Hebrew there is, it, it means covered place. And given what, what David says, or sorry, you delight in truth in the inward being, that's the line there. So given what David says about the, the secret place, the, the, the heart, that's probably what David's talking about in the first part of the passage as well. That what God wants is faithfulness even in our thoughts, even in the heart. We sometimes think of sin as just being the stuff that we do, the stuff that's public, the stuff that gets out. But David is saying, no, actually what God wants is faithfulness right at the very core of who we are because that's where sin springs from. That's what Jesus says too, right? He says, you know, you, you, you heard that you shouldn't murder somebody, but I'm telling you, don't even hate them. As soon as you've got that thought in your head, you're on that pathway. Jesus says, look, you, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't even look at a woman lustfully because it starts right there. And, and that's where it started for David. For David, the sin didn't start when he invited Bathsheba over. The sin started when he took a second glance and when he pursued knowing who Bathsheba was and so on. So again, David here is confessing that sin uh, is... It's, it's ultimately, he's accountable to an almighty creator who is right in his verdicts, justified when he judges. He's recognizing how deeply rooted his sin is, how truly twisted his heart is. He's recognizing that it just goes, it goes all the way back to the beginning. It's just, it's just this bent within him. I, I want to say a couple things about this. One is that we can learn from this the value of confession. Not that you need to keep a blog like publicly of all your sins. Like these are all the thoughts I had today. I would suggest not doing that. But David's sin is public. And so his confession in Psalm 51 is, is public. And I would say a really, really good healthy thing is to have at least one or two people in your life that you can confess everything and anything to that you can just kind of lay everything out. That, that kind of that act of confession and, and, that, and that way that God kind of also uses that person that we confess to, to to kind of speak forgiveness to is a really important discipline and one that I think is neglected in our world. Again, I'm not saying you get up in front of everybody and go, here it all is, but that, but that there's, there's a couple of trusted people in your life that you can be completely open with so nothing stays in the, in the secret, right? So David confesses public sin. He confesses publicly. And the other thing, again, is, is just to, to recognize that David's confession is not some naive, he doesn't, he doesn't kind of sweep it under a carpet. He doesn't just say like, hey, I just messed up this one time. And I wish people in our world would get that. Because so many people in our world think that they're basically generally really good people who maybe just make a mistake now and then, or that, that they've avoided the really big public bad things, and so they, they've avoided, mostly they've avoided hurting people really badly, and therefore they're pretty much innocent. And I wish that people, and I know this sounds kind of funny to say, but I wish that people understood how depraved they were. I wish that people, more people could come to terms with how deeply they need grace. 
Because there would be a whole lot more spiritual renewal. There would be a whole lot more people living in relationship with God if they stopped covering or, or pretending like they're basically good people and recognize how much they need help. Now, another difference between David and the typical Westerner in 2023 is that when, when people today do become aware of their brokenness, they're often taught to uh, embrace it, even to celebrate it. Um, we see, I mean, right now, this weekend, massive festival happening in Vancouver, and the name of that festival is, is Pride, which, biblically speaking, is not a posture that you want to emulate. Biblically speaking, that's a posture that drives you further away from God's grace. But that's what we see in our world, is, is a celebration of that. David doesn't celebrate it. David instead cries out to God for help. And his, his plea, there's, there's a number of things he's asking for, a number of things he's crying out to God for. And I'd, I'd put them in three kind of main categories or streams. So the first is that he is asking that God would wash him, that God would cleanse him. We see that language all the way throughout. Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Blot out my iniquity, uh, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Again and again, it's this, it's this language of, of removing this stain. Let's, um, let's talk about the hyssop line briefly because that, that's one where probably most of us don't know what hyssop is and it gives us a good image. So hyssop, as I found out this, this week, is a plant with a fragrant flower that was often used as an herbal medicine in the ancient world. In Leviticus 14, we read about hyssop. So Leviticus 14, let's just be totally honest, is not one of the more interesting or compelling chapters in our inspired scriptures. Uh, deals with uh, what you do when you have mold in your house, <laughs> as well as what you do when you have a defiling skin disease of various kinds. And, and, and the blanket term for that, at least back in the day, would have been leprosy. So if you believe that you have been cleansed, healed, from that skin disease, Leviticus 14 says that you are to go to the priest, and if the priest is satisfied that you really have been healed then the priest will sprinkle you. So this is how he completes the declaration of your cleanliness. He'll sprinkle you with water that has been mixed with hyssop. And so David here seems to be almost putting himself in that situation, saying that his sin perhaps has made him like a leper, has cut him off from relationship, and he's asking God, God, would you cleanse me? Would you declare me to be clean, would you declare that this sin that has publicly condemned me, that the guilt of it has, has been removed from me? So that public declaration. And then there's that whole language of washing, which is also a powerful image. Um, so as some of you know, we go to the South Okanagan town of Oliver every third week of July. We stay on a campground there. I talked about it last week. Um, I usually don't shower all week when we're there because the showers uh, have been told for years that they are cold and that you have to pay money to get the hot water. 
Like you have to pay like a dollar to get like a few minutes of hot water. And I'm just like, I'm cheap. I'm just not gonna do that. Not worth it. So I just don't, I, I usually don't shower. Now this year I discovered uh, kind of accidentally that the water is actually lukewarm. Like the, the, the non-paid water is actually not so bad. So this year I actually showered like every day. It was revolutionary. It was really crazy. But usually I don't shower all week. I know this story. You're like, this is a great story. Where is it going? So I usually don't shower all week uh, until the very end of the week and Carolyn's parents stay in a motel room on the campsite and they have a shower. So I use it like once a week at the end of the week. And at, at the end of the week, you're covered with like, you know, sand and sweat and dirt. And you've been in the, this lake is filthy. I mean, kids pee in it all week. And so you're just like swimming in this lake. And, uh, and so you're just gross, right? Like, again, what a beautiful image this is. Uh, you're, just, you're just so gross. And, and so when you, sh- when you shower every day, it's like, okay, whatever, that was nice. But it doesn't feel much different than before. When you've got a week's worth of, of sweat and sand and other stuff all over you, I mean, that shower is life-changing, right? You come out of there, you're like, you're a new man, you're clean, you're, you're like, you haven't felt this way in six days, it's amazing. And, and so that's, I think, kind of, you know, the image here, David, is covered with the stink and the stain of sin. It's, it's just covered him. It's obvious. It's visible. He feels it. He knows it. Sin, he says, my sin is always before you. But he says, God, can you wash me? Can you clean me? Can you remove that, that stink and that stain of sin from me and make me new again? So that's one stream. David's just saying, look, sin has, has left me dirty. God, can, can you wash that off of me? Get that off of me. Make me new again. The second kind of stream of David's requests, second theme, is that God would restore him. So this is not just a a removal of the stain of sin, but a returning of what was once there and has now been taken away. And you get that in, in a few different places. David says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. So sin has taken away joy. And David's saying, God, can you give that to me again? Can I rejoice once more? He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within him. David's spirit, his heart, had once been solid. It had been steadfast. It had been faithful. And now that's been stripped away. And so he's saying, God, can you give that back to me? Can you restore my heart to what it once was? He talks, about, he talks about granting him or granting him to him a willing spirit to sustain him, to restore to him the joy of his salvation. He once experienced joy in knowing God as Savior, and that has been taken away. God, can you give me that again? And really, I think the word that, that brings a lot of this together is, is reconciliation. That David recognizes that what sin has done most of all is that it has distanced him from God, it has, it has caused him to lose that intimacy of relationship with God. So he says, don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. See, what you need to notice is that we sometimes think in our weaker moments that sin is going to give us something, that sin is going to add something to our life. It's always a lie. Sin always, always takes. 
Sin destroys, sin kills, sin strips joy away from our life. Sin corrupts our hearts, sin ultimately wrecks that relationship of intimacy that we have with God. We, we think that sin is maybe fun, it's not fun, it maybe is a thrill in the moment, Maybe it makes you laugh at that time, but ultimately sin kills and steals and destroys. It's not something to be trifled with. It's not something, it's not just like a mild inconvenience. It's not something that you can just kind of have in your life coexisting peacefully with everything else. Sin is deadly serious. It takes all of that away. And so David's plea is, God, can you return it to me? Can you give me back that joy? Can you bring me back into intimacy with you that I would have your Holy Spirit, that I would walk with you in faithfulness once again? God, give me back what sin has taken away. And, and then the third stream or the third, the third theme in David's requests is that God would use him. Not only would he take away the sin and not only would he restore him, but that actually God would, would use him to draw other people to God as well. So he says if, if God answers these prayers, verse, 19, or verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. And in verse 18, he says, may it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Now, why is David praying that prayer in a psalm that's about his own sin? Well, David knew that he was accountable to God, but he also knew that his sin didn't just impact himself. And especially as king of Israel, he knew that his sin had a ripple effect that would impact the entire people of God. See, this as well is something that a lot of people in our world don't understand today. They think that, that maybe if I sin directly against another person, it will impact them. But if I've got this like secret sin that I keep hidden successfully from everybody else, it doesn't really impact anybody. It's not anyone's business because I kind of keep it under wraps over here. But we sometimes fail to, to recognize is that what we do in the secret where nobody sees still shapes us and forms us in ways that impacts other people. So, so you might be living this life over here and now you've become insensitive to God's voice. Now you're missing opportunities that God is giving you to serve him. Now you're parenting differently. You've got less patience. You've got less love. You're interacting with your neighbors differently. And so you're not, they don't even know it, right? They don't even, they don't even know that, that you are, your, your, your actions towards them have been altered by this sin over here, but it's, it's still happening. You're still making an impact. And so David recognizes that and he says, God, in, instead, of, instead of my life being used to drive people away from you. I want you to use my life to draw people to you. I want this thing to be reversed. I wanna live in a way that would be a blessing to others. God, would you speak through me, use me, minister through me? That's, that's David's request. God, use me once again. Have you been there? Have you been in the place where David is? I, like I, I genuinely hope you haven't been exactly in the place where David is, I hope none of you are like, yeah, I did this all last week. It was crazy. <laughs> but still, you've probably been in this place where these prayers are your prayers to God. Maybe you're there this morning, right now, where you've come to church this morning and these prayers resonate with you deeply because you know your sin and you know your need for grace. 
And if that's true, then there is one huge glaring question, which is, does God answer these prayers? David prays them, does God actually do it? And the answer is yes. You would be stunned if I said no at that point, right? The answer is yes. And, And we know that for a couple of reasons. One is the very fact that David has repented and been convicted of his sin. Remember how hard his heart was? And yet God still sent Nathan to him, still got around those defenses, still softened David's heart. Even that, I think, is evidence that God intends to forgive him and restore him and heal him. And the fact that Nathan tells him, your sins have been forgiven. But if if you've got conviction in your heart, if you know what you've done is wrong and you genuinely want to follow the Lord, that's really good evidence that God intends to cleanse you and heal you and restore you. But David is confident that the Lord will hear his prayer for an even more basic reason, I think, and it, it's, it's that, that he knows God's character. And it's because of who David knows God to be that he can be sure that God will answer these prayers. So, for example, in verse, in verse one, this is the last point, by the way, but David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, David knows that God's love is unfailing. It's not fickle and uh, it's not not unstable like human loves. It's, It's unfailing and endures. It's stronger than our sin. David knows that God is a God of compassion, a God who, as, as uh, we'll read in the Gospel of John, a God who does not desire our condemnation, but desires our salvation, desires us to know him. That's, that's God's compassion for sinners. And David knew that. And David, in verse 14, calls God his Savior. This is something David had seen again and again and again in his life. He had seen it when he was a shepherd boy, and bears and lions threatened his flock, and God saved David. He saw it when David went toe-to-toe with the giant Goliath, a man who was so much stronger and more equipped and skilled than David, and yet God saved David. David saw it when the murderous king Saul had him on the run, and David David saw God saving him from one situation to the next. David saw it when God rescued him when he was in a foreign land as a fugitive. Over and over and over again, David saw that God is a savior who loves to deliver us from situations that we can't get out of on our own. That's who God is. David had seen that. And then in in, uh, verses, I think it's 16 and 17, where David talks about how God doesn't delight in material sacrifice above all else, but that what God is looking for ultimately is a broken and contrite heart. David knew that about God's character because it was the reason he had been anointed as king. David had been anointed as king of Israel not because of his size or strength or because of his experience. It wasn't because he had put in like 40 years in in Saul's cabinet and was ready for this new responsibility. He was anointed as king of Israel because his heart was so fully oriented towards God that that it was this this, uh, trust and dependence, this recognition of his need for God. That's That's what drew David 
to God and why God anointed him in the first place. So David can look at all of that and say, on the basis of what I know about God from my own life and from the story of Israel, from the scriptures, I believe God will answer these prayers. And you know what? What David could see dimly to some extent on the basis of his own story and Israel's story we can see so much clearly, so much more clearly now on this side of the cross. Because we, in the cross, we see God's unfailing love and his compassion shining so abundantly. We see the Son of God who suffered total injustice and offered his life as a sacrifice so perfect, so complete, that it covers over every and any sin for those who confess and bring it to him. This is how Paul puts it in Titus. And I feel like this, this passage from Titus 3 could almost be just the response to Psalm 51. Paul writes to Titus and say, says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. It's like line by line, David's request, Paul is saying, this is what God has done in Jesus. He saved us. He's washed us. He's made us new. He's poured out his Holy Spirit on us. He's given us the hope of eternal life. If you ever wonder, can God really forgive my sin? Is he really willing, given how twisted I've become, how hardened my heart has become, would he really be willing to forgive me, to wash me, to restore me, to use me again? You just have to look to the cross. You just have to look to the extent to which Jesus went to redeem you from your sins. This is God's promise. Listen to this. Hold on to this. Obey this. 1 John 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful he is just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let me pray for you, for us, and then we're going to respond this morning in communion. And maybe just, just take a moment and um, bring your confession to the Lord. It's the time for you not to confess what other people have done to you. Not to lament that, but to lament what you have done. To confess where you have fallen short.
God, I thank you. I thank you that you know all things, that you know our hearts. You know what resides in the depths of our hearts. You know the thoughts in our mind, and that could be terrifying. But I do thank you, God, that you know that nothing is hidden from your sight. And that we can confess to you, we can bring it all before you, every little thing, because you already know it. And God, if, if that was all there was, if there was just confession, every single one of us would be condemned. Every single one of us is far more sinful than we would ever care to admit. But God, the, the amazing good news is that when we confess our sins, when we come to you and lay it all before you, that you are a God of unfailing love. You are a God of compassion. You are a God of redemption, a God of forgiveness, a God of restoration, a God of reconciliation, a God who is able to restore to us what has been lost by sin, what has been taken away by sin. You are a God who declares us to be just, to be innocent, to be righteous, not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. You are so good. And the good news of the gospel is so, so good. Holy Spirit, just shower us, Lord, in the knowledge of the gospel. Even right here this morning, just shower us, Holy Spirit, with that knowledge of your love for us. Now, not only are we far more sinful than we would care to admit, but that you love us far more than we could understand. And that you have done so much more than we could have ever asked to deal with our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Father, I pray today for freedom. I pray for genuine freedom that comes from confession and the assurance of forgiveness. And I pray that as we participate in communion this morning together, that the freedom that you want for us from our sins would be made known to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There, you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe that he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.